now the podcast starts. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to the podcast on which we talk about horror. Sometimes we talk about other things, and sometimes we do swear. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but as always, you can call me Dan, and in this episode of the podcast, I have the great pleasure of being joined by film teacher and writer Kirsty Warrow. Hello, Kirsty. Hello. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's just about a year since you and I talked about Nosferatu, so we're Is making. It, really? it must well. <laughs> I, I think it was about February twenty-two, so I think it was okay. it was early twenty-two anyway. Um, okay, I, I think we're making. An, um, well, I'm, the the listener can go back and check our previous podcasts. Um, do write in if I'm wrong. Um, I think I think I'm not because if I remember correctly, and and um, I think you'll know this, Kirsty, we were very close to the actual hundredth anniversary of the release of Nosferatu, which was in February, wasn't it? Yeah, well, was it? I mean, I'm I'm not sure now, but I, I mean, I know we definitely did that episode. I'm just I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to to remember exactly well, when the year we did it, but I remember uh, anyway, recording it. <laughs> well don't worry I don't want to bamboozle you with a film that you weren't expecting to talk about but anyway the point that I was just getting around to making was that we're well overdue a return to the world of German expressionist horror cinema and therefore we are going to be talking about a movie that's just a little bit older even than Nosferatu it's from 1920 so it's and and it was also released in February, so it is 103 years old, just as we are recording. Um, and it is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Kirsty, one of your favourites that you've wanted to talk about on the yeah. podcast for some time. Yes, yeah, I, lo- I love this film. It's glorious and it's beautiful and it's dark and it's twisted and it's all the things that I love about horror. I, I couldn't agree with you more it's wonderful I don't know it half as well as you do but I saw it when we were both um, students at university doing film um, and I loved it but I haven't watched it since until right now um, on the uh, the beautiful the beautifully restored blu-ray which you recommended to me um, it's a fantastic movie to discuss and to revisit um, and I, I'm sure there's going to be huge amounts to say about it um, Kirsty, in case the listener isn't familiar with the movie firstly let me warn the listener that we're going to talk in with uh, in a spoiler full fashion about the film because I think you have to when a movie is more than a century old um, <laughs> go away and watch it if you've never seen it um, but for the listener who has not seen it, um, Kirsty, please could you explain what The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is a German film, and I'm saying the British-English language title because I'm not confident about pronouncing the German title, which is not that dif- no. different, <laughs> but, you know. Um, uh, but can you explain what the movie is for the uninitiated, please, Kirsty? Okay, um, so there's quite a big spiel about this, really. So I think that it's important to, to when thinking about Caligari to understand that um, the kind of this is a film made in Weimar Germany, Germany, so that interwar period between year uh, World War One and World War Two, um, and you know, kind of everything in Germany at that time was really, really terrible. Lots of kind of you know hyperinflation, economic hardship, 
lots of, you know, kind of fallout from the war in terms of, you know, kind of loss of life and PTSD and, you know, just, you know, lots of, you know, uh, political instability and social instability and lots of crime and, you know, things were really, really difficult. Um, um, it, that was sort of, that terribleness was also kind of, um, uh, was well juxtaposed I suppose by the you know kind of creative liberation that kind of came around that time um and cinema um hadn't really kind of taken off in in Germany um uh and well not not that I hadn't taken off but that uh that there was this great um sense of freedom and all the artists of different types you know so um uh, painters and dancers and kind of theatre people and they all you know kind of having um, been freed from the shackles of, of censorship uh, um, after the war and um, basically all felt like that cinema was a wonderful place that they could all kind of work together and collaborate and sort of revel in the you know kind of possibilities of the future um, so the that's the kind of context of this big cinematic boom that happens in Germany at that point um, and uh yeah and so kind of german expressionist films which are you know arguably the most important that arrive in that point um are is a very really small uh film movement um which is was, was about reflecting the kind of broken nation um and the kind of context of you know horribleness in in weimar germany and the first german expressionist film the first proper german expressionist film uh is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which was directed by Robert Viner, um, released in 1920. It was made by a really small uh, studio. Um, they didn't have a huge amount of money, so when you watch the film, it looks very much like sort of filmed theatre. Um, mm. Famously, they didn't have a huge amount of um, uh, they didn't have consistent access to electricity, so the film has a lot of chiaroscuro and painted shadow the shadows that they would have ordinarily used light to create were actually painted onto the set and it sort of gives the film oh, a really wow. interesting and kind of distorted aesthetic. So it's considered as being like the one of the first proper horror films. Um, and so much of the kind of language of horror that we know cinematically and kind of in other visual mediums sort of arises out of this film um, and the films that, you know, it inspires like Nosferatu, which comes on two years later. Um, so it's, uh, it, and it's revolutionary for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but if you just talk about the visuals, so we have this kind of low key lighting kind of aesthetic, which as I've said, is sort of painted onto the set. set. Um, everything in the world that we're looking at in Caligari, or mo at least most of the things are really distorted. Um, and, you know, kind of, horror cinema is you know kind of famous for giving us lots of tilted um oblique angles in you know using the camera and the mise en scene to kind of create a sort of sense of distortion or disequilibrium um and that sort of starts with Caligari um so the kind of vignetting that they used they did on the camera there's a couple of really um, uh iconic ones like for example the kind of close up on Cesare when he wakes up in the film um mm -hmm. which is uh, in like a kind of diamond vignette. Um, so kind of give that sort of sense of tilted, the tilted world. Um, so yeah, so it kind of, yeah, it looks beautiful. It's 
it has all the kind of elements of what what we you know would now conventionally think about as being kind of horror um although it does sort of lean into thriller and kind of crime as well um mm. it is you know kind of yeah dreamlike and beautiful and it's um yeah <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to kind of keep rambling on about it so i'm not going to i don't want to let you take, <laughs> take over a little bit just because i could i could literally this this podcast could just be me going blah, blah, it was all a wonderful it's fascinating um I, I think if that's what it was, that would be fine. But I think we should uh, talk about the story of the movie um, a little bit, just yeah. for the listener who has not seen it, or even if they have seen it, but it has been a while, just to yeah. contextualise um, the elements that we're going to highlight. So yeah. um, uh, this, the film takes place in a small German town. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of the town. Oh, thank you very much. Perfect. Um, and um, it's well. Before I was going to start saying it, it's it's told uh, this kind of a framing story. It's the film. The story of the film is within another story. But you know that's a structural thing, um, which we'll come to. I'm sure. But the main story of the movie is that in this small town, um, a traveller, this eccentric traveller. Dr. Gallagari, played by Werner Krauss, is that right? Yeah, Werner Krauss, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's extraordinary um, kind of rotund top-hatted figure comes to town and he brings with him his somnambulist called Cesare and I'm really glad that I watched the documentary on the Blu-ray so that I know how to say Cesare because yeah. I would have said Cesar because yeah. that's what it looks like. Yeah, um, and I've seen, I've seen but, many many a video essay where the uh, the often American essayist um, <laughs> does exactly that and you think, oh, bless you. <laughs> to be fair, you know, in yeah, silent yeah. cinema, you, you're you're in a minefield. I think we had a problem with yeah. some of the names in Nosferatu, didn't we? So, yeah. yeah. Um, um, like Canuck. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, so um, he this um, uh, this eccentric Doctor Caligari basically is is like a carny um, traveler. He exhibits his somnambulist, a twenty three year old man who's apparently been asleep for his whole life, mm-hmm. um, but he is occasionally awoken, and when he is awoken. Um, according to Caligari, he knows everything. So Caligari's stage act is to bring him to life mm-hmm. and have him answer questions uh, of the audience. And the first question which is asked is, um, so, somebody makes a, a really bad choice of asking, yeah. how, how am I going to die? Yeah, young and Alan. He, <laughs> and he says... <laughs> Uh, I think the answer is tonight, isn't it? Yeah, or, 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 um, or how, I think Alan asks, how long will I live? And and Cesare says, until oh. dawn, I think. Oh. Or something it. like that. Yeah. Um, this is a really... Even though we're going to talk a lot about the visuals, um, and obviously it's a silent film, so the visuals are kind of 99% of the power of it. it um, and also it's a translated film, so I, you know, I'm not sure how to... to um, criticize the the writing of the dialogue which was in the language which i don't speak but as translated 
um you it's really beautifully written the the kind of speeches that you get in intertitles obviously and sometimes really long intertitles you know it's not afraid to give characters detailed long speeches um in a movie in which you can't hear the dialogue and uh, also the actual intertitles which have been restored on the blu-ray according to their original design are incredible to look at they're just uh, you know just the typography of of the words um uh, is lovely as well um so uh yes and from this point in the film there are a series of murders within the town which we come to believe or suspect are the work of Cesare um and um various characters well the the main the main protagonist character who gets involved in in solving this um mystery if solve is is the right word um because there's a great deal of ambiguity as it goes along um he chases he traces Caligari he traces uh, Cesare to Caligari to back to um the asylum a nearby um in in the language in the vernacular of the time insane asylum yeah um but it seems that caligari is not an escaped inmate as we first think but perhaps the actual director of the asylum Mm -hmm. um and the narrative goes in in into kind of a spiral from there to the point where uh, we're not sure if the protagonist character um, has perhaps always been in the asylum, mm. and, uh, and the whole thing has been a fantasy. Yeah, um, in his mind, uh, it's a great nugget. It's a great horror story. I mm-hmm. think uh, you know, it's a it's a lovely little plot idea, which is not something which is you know talked about uh, with regard to the movie, but. Because um, the storyline is is so overwhelmed by the visuals, I think, and the visuals are extraordinary as we'll discuss. Yeah. But I do think that it's based on a fascinating idea. Just yeah. the character. Um, my favorite word, I think, or one of my favorite words that I've said on the podcast before is liminal. Mm. Um, and there's something of the liminal of the the unclear distinction between one world and another about a character who is always asleep um and has always been asleep um it's kind of a subtly different um thing from the kind of more common horror idea that you know night things exist in your nightmares but a character who's kind of asleep but also interacting with the with the conscious people there's just something extremely um um off-putting about that and fascinating um and and that uh the character is is played by the incredible conrad veit who just is extraordinary to look at um and i think this is a point where we can move back to the visual side of the film and kirsty i think you look like you've got loads to say oh gosh Um, so much where to begin yeah so i just i think for me i want to start off with that idea of sort of the kind of stories in relation to the visual because i think it's it it's something that 
the, the film that maybe doesn't execute very well in its kind of final act. But if you look at it, if you look at the, so the, the film begins in a garden or what we think is a sort of, you know, it's definitely an outdoor space. And it's a kind of quite realist space in that you can sort of see there are trees and there's a bench and it's kind of clearly, you know, there's foliage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, 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 you know, kind of our attention is drawn to Francis, who's um, talking to this older guy who looks really haunted. And the older guy sort of says all these, you know, these terrible things have happened to me. Um, and Francis basically says, oh, well, you know, that's terrible. But let me tell you about all these things that have happened to me. Um, and he talks about kind of, you know, mm-hmm. being, you know, being haunted and, you know, all sorts of different things. So yeah, that's so this is in... the framing narrative that Yeah, yeah, that so I this is the framing device. Yeah. And then we go into the kind of story. So he starts off, you know, essentially going, the town where I was born. And then we get introduced to... Um, and what's interesting is that when we, it, the kind of visuals of the film, which in when we're looking at the, the you know, the kind of embedded primary narrative, um, what's going on in Holstenwall and Francis and Alan and, and I'm going to call her Jane, but it's probably Jana because German um, and mm-hmm. Jane and all of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, that is when we get the first sort of bits of like really distorted kind of highly stylized visuals. Um, and you know, kind of part of the reason why <laughs> it go, you know, the kind of it looks that way is because we're, you know, at that point we are. It. I mean, I don't want to liken it to too many of the films for fear of spoilers, but at that point we are in Francis's kind of mind. It's his illusions, so that's why the film looks like it does. Why it's so distorted, and everything mm. is really heightened, and some of the like the timings of things don't quite make sense. And, you know, you think, well, and if he's telling when he, you know, cause he's the narrator, he then becomes a narrator. Um, mm. He's telling us about events that he wasn't present for. So how would he know that, you know? So there's a kind of a consistency in the fact that it, it kind of, if you look at it and really think about it, it there's a logic in why it looks so stylized and why the narrative doesn't really kind of hold up when you, when you, when you actually kind of um, scrutinise it, because it isn't real. It's, you know, we get to the other end and we realise that this has all been, it's a fabrication, it's a delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the first film, I think, to actually give us that kind of big reveal at the end, that sort of, oh, he's an, on, you know, he's a an unreliable narrator. Um, yeah, and everything is, you know, yeah. And so every everything that we've seen, sort of seen before is has been made up. Um, I think it's worth as well, though, just in terms of the narrative, um, just giving props to um, three people. Uh, so the two primary writers are were Carl um, Hans Janovich and Carl Mayer, um, mm. and they wrote it collaboratively and they were drawing on experiences. So one of them, I can't remember which one, had a sort of an abusive relationship with a, a therapist. Um, they'd both, I think, been in the war and so were drawing experiences on sort of PTSD and that kind of stuff. Um, and one of them as well had witnessed a murder, I think, and then it it hadn't been handled very well by the police. Um, so yeah. the kind of collective experiences were the script that they wrote for Caligari was the 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 frame that was the embedded narrative with Francis and Holstenville and the crimes and whatever. Um, and yeah. Eric Pommer, who was the producer, um, really liked it, but thought that the story was you know the ending was was not maybe as optimistic as he felt like the german people needed at that point 
because that's on where the you know the Caligari, this man who's you know the director of the asylum, who's in power, has been um, you know kind of exposed for manipulating people and for you know using people for doing nefarious deeds. That whilst that might have greater resonance in the kind of political context um, with Kaiser and all that kind of stuff, um, whilst that might be true, it wasn't a very hopeful ending. So it was actually Eric Palmer who came, came up with the, the framing device of Francis telling the story and then being revealed to be, you know, the actual madman. Um, okay. And then to have, you know, kind of Caligari, not Caligari, the director sort of kind of come down and go, oh, I get it now. I know how I can cure him. And then that, the end is not a kind of happy ending, but the promise of a happy ending at some point in the future that he will be cured. Um, and I genuinely think, although obviously I'm sure that the kind of, both original writers were probably not maybe really happy with that addition, that it would not be as interesting as a film without that, you know, kind of framing element, that sort of twist, because that's where we get the twist. Otherwise, it's just a very fairly straightforward story. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say two things. Firstly, I, I'm i not sure if it is like a, a more reassuring ending to say that it was... All in the narrator's mind. I mean, that's it's interesting reasoning that, but also I think maybe the way I read the very ending is it suggests that the the filmmakers were slightly playing against the the sense of that ending because when Caligari says, "Ah, now I know how to cure him." There's a kind of look in his eyes, mm-hmm. uh, and the film ends on that close-up. I'm calling him Caligari, which is not his yeah. real name, but you know the but, director yeah. of the asylum. Um, and 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 I and I was left with the kind of just a, a general sense of uncertainty. It's like yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure what's happened, but I think this guy this guy appears to be in control, but I don't know that I trust him. Yeah, but what I wonder, though, is is that kind of reaction, because I think that's how I first felt when I watched it, is that reaction Mm. to the ending of it is built on the fact that we've had 100 years of horror cinema after, where we constantly don't expect to have a sort of reassuring ending. So Mm. my understanding is that the the intention was that it should be, you know, it's like, oh, he'll cure him and that's fine. And, you know, kind of at the time... Um, better crowds, you know, crowds without the makeup and all of that kind of stuff would have been seen, sort of seen as a fairly trustworthy kind of character. Yeah, um, it, it's extraordinary yeah. how different he looks without the makeup, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because but yeah, he certainly... does discard the Cal- the Caligari guys at that point. Yeah. Um, when he is the asylum director, um, yeah. and, and and yeah, in a way, he's kind of barely recognisable. I have to say that there's a bit where. Uh, Francis goes into the asylum for the first time uh, looking for Caligari and and he sees the asylum director and realises oh you're Caligari but I had to kind of rewind it because he looks so different because oh, okay. um, I, I, I didn't see him as different in that, that like it's only sort of at the end I think that he looks significantly different but that's just... okay um, well I uh, yeah, it did throw me. I I just kind of had to pause it yeah. and look at him closely, um, but uh, you know uh, maybe that's just me. Um, but uh, the, yeah, I I understand your point that um, Kraus without the makeup would have read as a much more trustworthy um, 
person um, and and that it is a hopeful ending in that sense. Um, it does still raise um, lots of questions. You know, as you say, it probably makes the film more interesting because if, even if you do take the ending as straightforwardly meaning what it says it does, you have all the questions about, so how much of the film uh, was kind of invented by yeah. Francis? Um, uh, I mean, um, and what what does it therefore mean? Um you know what what did Cesar cuz also Cesar is a real person in the world of the asylum yeah as yeah, in I you know that. he's yeah. in, he is in that final scene with Francis and I, I you, you know you could read it that Francis's delusion has has kind of incorporated the people around him and he's created his own narrative with them but what does that mean <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. what no, um and uh yeah it's the it, it's a fascinating kind of puzzle box um of of a narrative um kind of stories within stories um and also it's a, you know like um most feature films of the time it's only about 75 minutes long um but it feels like it contains worlds within worlds yeah it absolutely um, does uh, can I just ask, Kirsty, when did you first see this movie? Um, was it the same as me when we were at yeah, uni? Yeah, yeah, it was, but it wasn't until I mean, if you'd have asked me, you know, kind of twenty years ago, what my favourite, you know, kind of silent film was or generally specialist film, I would absolutely said Nosferatu. Um, mm. And I think it was only when I started teaching this properly that I started, started to kind of go, "Oh my god, look at how like it does on the face of it, it looks really." I often use the word with students and look, you know, talk, talk about it looking sort of primitive because it does. There isn't a huge amount of camera work that kind of goes on. It feels very much like sort of there's a sort of proscenium arch approach. It feels like film theatre. There's one bit early on, actually, when Alan, bless him, leaves the frame to go and get his coat before he decides to go to the fair and then comes back into the frame and like for. I know, 10 seconds, we're just looking at an empty frame. We're looking right. at a film that feels very, very much like somebody working out how I make films. Right, okay. And that, and the kind of visual complexity comes from the wonderful um, set design, um, which is done by an architect called Herman Vaughn. Um, and he, you know, the kind of, the way the film has this beautiful kind of chiaroscuro aesthetic very much comes from, from that. Um, but narratively, it's so it's so much more complex than the you know kind of fairly simplistic visual style um, makes you think that it would do. So, like I said, we've got that framing device, and then we've got the embedded narrative, and then sort of in the latter part of the film, when Francis has made his discovery, um, and uh, him and some of the younger doctors go and look. Get you know, sneak into the director's office and they find books in his diary. And then we get into the diary, then we then go into a secondary embedded narrative and a secondary um, uh, narrator because then it's the director telling his story of what, what Caligari is and what he was trying to achieve. And it's at that point we can really, you know, that people have sort of said, look, it, it, it partly feels like Caligari. Um, and Cesare is a, you know, it's a metaphor for the Kaiser. 
um, who had abdicated at this point. Um, and, you know, and Cesare then becomes a sort of cipher for the, you know, the kind of average soldier who believed in the rhetoric and the narrative that, you know, the kind of military leaders were putting out um, and willingly went off to fight and die. Um, and the central question, I mean, the thing that Caligari, the director rather, is asking himself in his diaries is, can I make somebody do something that they wouldn't do normally? Like they wouldn't do if they were conscious or in their right mind. And then, of course, that really speaks to the kind of, you know, the kind of, the, the you know, the crisis or part of the crisis in the kind of German psyche at the time of like, how do we get here? How do we send so many of our young men off to die? Um, you know, and look at where we are now and the kind of, you know, just the sort of instability of it all. So it's a marvellously rich, rich film that, you know, I think if you just were to sit down with it once and look at it once as a, a sort of casual observer, you'd go, oh, that's a really, you know, kind of not very fluent, cheap looking, you know, kind of a silent film. Um, but it's so much more than that. It's so beautifully dense and kind of yeah liminal and illusory and you know creative and um and important so yes um beautifully yeah. <laughs> put um and i i couldn't agree more from my my limited knowledge um but i think that um if you are able to look at it um in the modern restoration of it and get a fairly good idea of what it was like to see it at the time you know when it when it was when it was not a piece of ancient history it was yeah um a piece of peak technology even though in a medium which was just kind of finding itself um uh, you know it, it's it was a very um cutting edge creative expression um i i think that in a lot of ways it's it's got an incisiveness um that cuts through i've just made a pun incisiveness cut didn't mean to do that um uh, uh um you know i think um it's a very purposeful movie and yes um uh very stagey if you like as you say it's like filmed theater a lot of the time it's a lot of the scenes are on clearly they're not just clearly sets they're clearly very small sets actors are standing kind of three feet in front of the backdrops of the town at points things like that yeah. you know um but it it all feels very intentional the artifice of all the visuals because they're so exaggerated feels very deliberate i mean not yeah. only have you got the very small sets but you've also got the needlessly huge things like the needlessly huge staircase um yes. things like that uh, size is distorted and, and inappropriate kind of in every way and mm. it reminded me above all of tim burton um well yeah, you, you know course. i mean clearly yeah, yeah. um I, I, um i don't want to <laughs> make a stupidly obvious statement but um uh and i obviously i knew that in the back of my mind that there's a very strong um naked german expressionist influence on, on most everything that tim burton has ever done but yeah um the fact that those things 
are, he's able to do in relatively recent time and they work with the audiences I feel like going back and watching Caligari especially in its restored format is just as powerful you know and there is even though it's film theatre uh, or it has similarities to film theatre there is a kind of power that you get when you uh, stick a camera close to those kind of um, set pieces and designs and kind of invite the audience to see them for what they are but at the same time um, uh, kind of imagine beyond that as well that the, 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 there are multiple things going on in, in those images which um, uh, I find very compelling and, and enjoyable actually um, yeah it's only you talk about Tim Burton because it is, you know, it's like undoubtedly, undoubtedly that we would not have Tim Burton in the form that <laughs> we do without these films and Caligari in particular. And there's, um, you know, the the sort of Cesare as as being, you know, the kind of really predominant kind of influence on Edward's hands visually. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's the, the, the dark eye shadow. Especially, yeah, 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 and the kind um, of, sort of mop of hair and the, you know, the and the, it's all there. But um, there's, have you seen? There's a wonderful um, uh, uh, early um, animation by Tim Burton called Vincent. I haven't seen which it. Which is uh, you haven't? You would absolutely adore that. I, I'm um, sure I would. So it's about it's an animation about little. Yes, it's about a little boy who um, imagines that he's Vincent Price. Right. <laughs> and it's uh, it's a wonderful poem where Vincent Price actually does the does the the kind of voiceover, but all of the visuals are so kind of clearly Caligari. So right. you were talking about the impossible, like the ridiculously high stairs, and there's lots of mm. you know light falling in from windows, and um, you know kind of lots of kind of macabre elements, and it's also and and the kind of the animated rendering of this little boy is gaunt, and he's his big eyes, and you know kind of. Cesare kind of type hair um so yeah I think you know he's such a obviously kind of um I don't want to go as far as to say important filmmaker but he you know he's a, a you know kind of a filmmaker who has indelibly shaped the kind of way in which certainly since the 19 well you know kind of late 19, 1980s the way that horror has looked particularly to popular audiences um that you know and his kind of yeah. influence you know his, his yeah he, he's a filmmaker he, he, he made the, 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 the trappings of kind of art cinema kind of mainstream didn't he that's um, that's the impact on a lot of other filmmakers, well any other filmmaker who sort of does that is compared to Tim Burton um, and usually, usually as a lesser um, thing he's like the um, uh, the primary example of that uh, just before you go on Kirsty the obvious parallel that I saw that I, I, I can't believe I didn't realise previously was um, the penguin in Batman Returns is Dr Caligari yeah yeah um, yeah just yeah. that that combination of the, uh, you know the top hat and suit but yeah, a kind yeah. of monstrous yeah, the, the, shape beneath yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of the, the sense of something kind of evil and, and kind of hideous kind of mocking respectability by by its choice of clothing 
um, I'm using the, the word it there, but there is something about both characters which bridges the human and the monstrous. So, um, yeah, but... and there's of course there's there's the way that this also so I think the really nice link to make here is is that you know in many ways as well Caligari is the birth of film noir or at least the things that would ultimately become film noir. So it's mm. a you know kind of urban setting and there's crime and the police you know and there's some nefarious criminal in the background controlling things. Mm-hmm. So you know that's that's kind of Batman, isn't it? That's <laughs> Well, yeah, it's yeah. kind of you know, you know. Well, at least we don't have Batman in this, but we have all the makings. There is a sort of Batman-shaped hole in, <laughs> in yes, yes, in this particular narrative. Um, so you know, and but we do, you know, there's it's similarly there's a kind of you know a, a person who is not actually uh, a police officer who kind of gets drawn into the investigation of the yeah, that's true. Um, Francis you know, is a kind of vigilante, isn't he? Almost. Well, uh, well, it's only what I always think is interesting is that he's he's sort of shown as being you know like a, like a quite a serious student, and then like his girlfriend's dad is a doctor, and the two of them decide that they obviously have more status than the police, and right. then they go off and try and you know figure out what's going on, um, and and nobody goes, just don't do that, you're not, it's not your job. Well, that's true, yeah. Quite a lot of, you know, of I suppose of what was going on in Germany in the time. Maybe, yeah, maybe it connects to the kind of establishment mistrust and, and disappointment that you're talking about. But the police yeah, yeah, yeah. are characterised as being particularly useless, aren't they? I mean, yeah. uh, the, the main image that I take away of the police from this movie is those two officers in the police station sitting at that massive desk, you know, the the desk which is so high in the chairs that it kind of takes them a minute just to get away from the desk. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is kind of a lovely kind of summation of the inefficiency of, uh, you know, of this kind of state organisation. Can I also make another link, actually? You were talking about, about the kind of penguin and stuff, and, and, and I wrote one of the first sort of things that I probably wrote for publication anyway was a, a sort of comparison of um, uh, of uh, Caligari and Hannibal, because, of course, because, huh? you know, we've got <laughs> parent patient patient uh kind of therapist yeah um yeah relationship gone horribly wrong we've also got um like hannibal is really you know it's obviously divorced from reality in lots of ways visually and that kind of again comes from caligari it's all very very heightened because Mm. um you were in a subjective not realist space um and also if you think about it in caligari the first person to die dies because he's rude to the doctor. <laughs> it just seems like like a like a perfect thing. It's like oh, oh yeah. the tank clerk. He says, "Wait, you will wait your turn," and that's then that's ultimately the point where Caligari goes, "Right, okay, you're going to be first. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, so, we, I'm sure we we cannot identify with with that wanting to murder someone who slighted us. Especially well, when they're a bureaucrat. Um, okay, well, that, yeah, well, that, that's the joy of Hannibal, isn't it? Is that all those people you're going to go, oh, okay, yeah, they're terribly impolite. You're dead. <laughs> yeah, um, I suddenly realised as well that, um, although weirdly, uh, um, it doesn't. Sorry, let me just formalise this thought because my furrowed brow is not going to make amazing uh, audio. Um, you can see um, a kind of circular 
influence on the presentation of the character of Hannibal in Cesar. And when I say circular, what I mean is it takes the, the visual versions of Hannibal a while to circle back to it because you probably couldn't compare too much the, the, the film versions of Hannibal with Cesar apart from the way everybody who plays Hannibal does this actually. It's the stillness that Conrad Veidt has with Cesar, you know, the slow oh, awakening oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the way that Anthony Hopkins and Brian Cox and later um, Mads Mikkelsen all, all kind of have that those scenes where they're just kind of standing in, in a room uh, and and you don't know what's going to happen. But I, but of all the animals, I do think that, um, and you, you know, this may be subconscious on the part of the the creators, or you may know more than me here, Kirsty. But there is a resonance with, um, well, a resemblance to Comrade Veidt, I think, in Mads Mikkelsen that the others don't have. Just the kind of uh, the statuesque quality. Um, even something in the face. I mean, um, Mickelson has a beautifully kind of sculptured face, um, which is kind of reminiscent of the way that the makeup on on Vite kind of makes his cheekbones stand out and things like that. Um, I guess that's probably a complete coincidence that I'm reading in that, but um, uh, we don't want to spend too much of, of our of our episode on Gary talking about Hannibal in those terribly easy and, and fun to do so um yeah. we could just talk about Hannibal every week couldn't we um but uh, yeah. but yes yeah. um that's uh that's quite a compelling argument on on the um the, the paralleling of Hannibal and and Gallagari and um so I shall put the link in the in the notes for this episode yeah great um I shall certainly do that um Seeing as you've mentioned a hobby horse of yours with Hannibal, I'll, I'll obviously need to mention that um, uh, Cesare and Vite reminded me of Christopher Lee quite a lot, and I'm yeah. aware that Lee kind of, um, I think it's Jonathan Rigby in in his book English Gothic who says that Lee idolised Conrad Vite. Um, I don't have any more detail than that. Um, but I would say that a lot of Lee's performances, obviously Dracula, but, but a number of other um, monsters especially, kind of um, have a debt to, to what Vite does with Cesare in this movie. And also, um, in a more general way, I think that um, although Cesare is not a vampire, this is kind of the movie which invents the vampire. Mm cinematically isn't it you can see a clear link um to nosferatu yeah. um and to the and yeah. cesare is a, is a figure in a coffin essentially isn't he you know um he's awoken mm. from his coffin um uh to eerily kind of um proceed back to life um what were you going to say kirsty i cut you off there. yeah there's also a kind of it's okay there's also a link isn't there well to the kind of Frankenstein myth as well so you've mm. got you know kind of obviously kind of mad scientist and and his kind of I don't say creation but certainly you know kind of creature that's under his control and there's the you know kind of the attack on Jane in her bedroom and that sort of sense of the monster seeing 
you know, beautiful woman, and suddenly that yeah, yeah. changes everything. Um, and then there's, <laughs> you can even sort of see echoes of um, Caligari in the James Wells, um, James Wells, was it 1931 Frankenstein? Frankenstein. You've got that sort of silhouetted, silhouetted kind of uh, hill, and you've got Boris Karloff kind of lumbering across the hill in silhouette and whatever. Um, and then, so the chase sequence in Caligari, which is not very long, and is maybe not the most fluent in cinema history, does have this kind of moment where Cesare is sort of, again, sort of on, on the peak of a hill, arms outstretched, sort of lumbering, and then he sort of, you know, kind of collapses down and rolls down the hill. Um, but, the you know, there's a visual similarity there between that sort of sense of the, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of, the you know, one of the first important um, universal horrors. And I think, again, that's the, the other thing to note is that the, that you know, Caligari gave birth to German expressionism as a cinematic movement, and those films, you know, essentially kind of ended up uh, artistically um, and technically kind of influencing a lot of what Hollywood did after in horror and, and crime cinema, um, mm. because of you know the kind of the creative exodus that happened in the nineteen you know kind of nineteen twenties nineteen thirties um, as you know kind of fascism. Um, I was on the rise in, in Germany. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a kind of really, you know, there's a, a reason why that aesthetic takes off in, in America because of the way that those people were had worked in Germany were then working in, in America. Um, and we just, you know, I don't think it can be understated too strongly. Um, or can't, I don't think it can be overstated, rather, mm. that, you know, the importance of Caligari in terms of horror cinema or horror you know in terms of its visual conception at all no um, you know it is a fundamental film <laughs> yes um um I, I wouldn't dare to argue with that um i think that's um uh completely true and um you know the the uh the influences within the movie to what happened later are myriad um and, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know we could tease out uh, many, many more. We're running out of time. Um, yeah. So uh, we 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 have you know um, we haven't gone into as much depth as we could. Um, but I want to have a quick word about the restoration Blu-ray. Um, I would strongly urge anyone who, whether you've seen the film before or not, if you haven't seen the restored version, go to the Blu-ray it's it's absolutely beautiful um they the, they've made the the film seem pristine and alive and current um i think it's incredibly um impressive what's done on the blu-ray but it's also a really good set in it you know it comes with a booklet um lots of contextual information essays video essays and so on um really recommended um, I also just want to mention before we finish, I think my favourite bit in the movie and, and a fascinating element of the plot um, and, and the story that we've not got time to dissect is the idea that the asylum director was not really Caligari. Caligari someone who he reads about and he decides to imitate. Um, but then he becomes thrall to forces which make him kind of become Caligari and there's a wonderful scene where he is trying to kind of run away and is pursued by demonic forces which manifest as animated words appearing on the screen 
saying you must become Caligari which I thought was is my favourite moment of the film because it's an example of the film being everything visually and cinematically that it could be at the time given the resources and the possibilities available in the medium um, and also just that phrase which was apparently the, uh, the kind of marketing tagline of the movie you must become Caligari um, it, um, it's just um, I just love the, the, the weirdness the, the weird power of that exactly what does it mean why must he become Caligari um, uh, yeah that, I, I, I had to mention that before we finish um, is there anything you'd like to say about that or any other thing about the film you want to throw in just as a final thought Kirsty um, there's two things, one serious, one not serious. Oh, okay. So the first thing you before you were talking about it, it's it you know kind of you can sort of see um, you know it, it's it's really difficult to watch this film without obviously thinking about what happens next in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the kind of there's a, a really famous book by a guy called Siegfried Krakow who's one of the first people to write about it as in, uh, about the film and about German expressionism and the movement. Who basically said that you know the kind of Caligari? So the film was called um, "From Caligari to Hitler: uh, yes. A Psychological History of German Film" or something like that. Um, and so it's really difficult to you know it is difficult to watch it and not see the kind of way that Caligari sort of seems like you know kind of we were talking about the, the kind of metaphor before, um, and it does seem like a weird premonition. Um, but it you know it's kind of I think. What what Krakow said is that it sort of that Caligari as a narrative reflected this need that that um, Germany had at the time for a sort of tyrannical leader, somebody who'd come around and go, right, this is this is you know I'm going to make it right, this is going to make it good, you just need to follow me. Um, uh, you know, but lots of people have disputed that as being a bit simplistic, but it is really difficult not to do in retrospect mm. to see the film in its context, um, and I think there's actually true that's true of. Uh, you know of Nosferatu as well, and you know and and um, Metropolis, which is the other kind of big one from the movement, to not see them as being sort of somehow weirdly sort of affected by events they didn't yet know about. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. The second thing is that um, Caligari. You know, as if you're a film fan, um, it's one of those you know names that gets kind of banded around quite a lot, and and often it takes film. Film fans, film students, to to take to uh, quite a while before they see it, um, and it sort of becomes a little bit of a kind of torch to be passed on in terms of like, have you seen Caligari? Do you know about Caligari? Um, and that idea is beautifully captured. There's um there's a sketch comedy a sketch show a few years ago called Portlandia, oh, right. an American uh, sketch show called with Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein. Um, and they did this wonderful sketch about um, this woman in this sort of suburban neighbourhood who in the early days of Netflix, if you remember when Netflix was when you had discs and you had your, your, your list of you. Oh, remember it? It seems like about um, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the kind of the woman and the postman who delivers her discs is uh, uh, Fred Armisen. Um, and, you know, when he delivers Cabinet Dr. Caligari, he's like, oh, this is the Cabinet Dr. Caligari. You really, really need to watch it. Um, and she's like, oh, yeah, no, I've heard such great things about it. I will absolutely watch it. And then sort of, you know, like she keeps returning discs and 
and he keeps bringing in new de- discs and he keeps saying, have you watched it? And she keeps, oh, no, I haven't. And he's like, you really, 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 really need to watch this film. And this, so it's sort of, there's a repeated kind of pattern of her, you know, kind of having conversations with him and she's not actually watching it yet. Um, and then eventually she gets so annoyed with him that she does actually sit down and watch it. And then there's this sort of kind of magical transition that because now she's watched it, she becomes the postman and now it's her job to go around and convince somebody else to watch it. <laughs> right, Which, okay. um, feels very, you know, <laughs> very sort of on point what it's like to be that person who understands how amazing Caligari is. Um, yeah, yeah and to get uh, other people to watch it. Yes. Uh, once you've received it, you want to share it. And uh, yes. Yes. Um, you must people... share it. <laughs> yes, you must become Caligari. Um, Caligari, yes. And, <laughs> and, uh, yes, sometimes getting people to watch 100-year-old cinema is not the easiest thing. But No, I mean, um, I, I, I make mine, so, that's, you know, they don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, but, you know. Good position to be in. Um, uh, unfortunately, the Portlandia sketch is apparently unavailable online at the moment. Otherwise, we would link to it. But you know, listener, please keep you've an got, eye you've out. Got my, my explanation. Yes. Um, uh, who <laughs> knows? One day, maybe we'll, we'll all be able to watch it again. But at least mm-hmm. we know about it now. Um, Kirsty, that that brings us to the end of our chat about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Thank you so much for sharing some of your great insights and knowledge of this classic movie my pleasure (laughs) i think we should keep doing this regularly we should keep going back to the the german expressionist kind of well because this is fascinating stuff and Mm -hmm. um again uh, just just going back to the blu-ray made me want to um re-explore because a lot of these films i've seen but i'd like to see them again in the way that I rediscovered Caligari, I don't know if all the films have been restored to this standard. No, but, no, <laughs> sadly um, not. I mean, the, there's a documentary on the disc which gives a good overview of the kind of movement, mm. and clearly some of the films have not been restored. Um, no, um, sadly. And there's, they, not, I mean, there's not many in the, in the movement anyway. There's only about seven, so or seven. Yeah, well, certainly it's it's less than twenty. <laughs> she says. Wow. So, but uh-huh. yeah, it's it's not well, not many that have survived. So, oh. um, yeah. Tragic, but fascinating stuff. All right, Kirsty. Well, well, we'll leave it there then. But we'll be back um, in the future. We'll definitely come back to German expressionism, but also we'll be back soon talking about I know not what. Kirsty, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great pleasure. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Thanks, Dan. And listener, thank you so much for listening. You'll hear from us again. Bye bye, everybody. Bye. You have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Waddo and T D Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music, and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. 
please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now the podcast stops.